Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing our walk through the book of Luke, and we've come to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to deal with the bold ministry of John the Baptist. As I said, today we will begin chapter 3 of Luke's gospel with the bold ministry of John the Baptist. John was no wimp. We know he made the wilderness his pulpit, the ground was his bed, and the bugs his provision, and the Lord his prize. John's ministry was anything but timid. He was unafraid to call out religious hypocrites, sinners, and even politicians. We could say many things about John's ministry. We could say it was biblical, and it certainly was. John preached the book. We could say it was bewildering, and it was. John was not popular. And he was different. He looked different. He acted different. He was totally unique in that he was the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament preacher. All of this is true, but my focus today, given the climate of our world, is that John's ministry was bold. John did not preach for the applause of men. John did not care for the approval of a denominational board. He was not attempting to climb the ministerial association's ladder. John was concerned with one thing, the truth, and this truth is the truth, Jesus Christ. John needed to be bold, for the hearts of the people were hardened. John needed to be bold, for his task was costly, the stakes were high, and he was to go at it alone, humanly speaking. I will argue as we go through this narrative that the need of that day is the need of our day. And for myself, as a Baptist, Baptists, if anybody, need to boldly proclaim the truth, not seeking to please men or society or denominational heads or politicians, but seeking to please an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was said of yesteryear that Baptists were barnstormers, Bible beaters. I'm not speaking of legalism, but I cannot help see, but see that perhaps in our day, some Bible beating and barnstorming may do a little good. Let us consider the bold ministry of John the Baptist. As we move through Luke 3, 1 through 20, we're going to note the moment of John's ministry. We're going to note the method of John's ministry. We're going to note the mission of John's ministry. And then lastly, the message of John's ministry. As you'll see, each of these headings are marked by one common thread. And that is the boldness of John the Baptist. He's not John the baby anymore as we've seen earlier in Luke's account. He's John the Baptist now. With that introduction, let's read Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 20. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Adorea in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went in all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be lifted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up John in prison. And so the first thing we notice in this text comes to us in the first several verses. I'm speaking of the moment of John's ministry. The moment. By this I mean that he writes during the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign. Pilate was already governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip over Adorea. And lastly, we're told Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priest during that time were Annas and Caiaphas. And so the moment of John's ministry. This is the time. Everything God has ever done and ever will do has been according to his perfect moment, his timetable, not ours. Now, like any good historian, Luke offers several time markers by way of informing the reader who was reigning during this time and who was in this position or that position. It would be like if I said to you, let me tell you this story. It happened back when Bush was president. I haven't given you a year or month, but I've given you a timeline by pointing to a famous person that you would know. That's the same thing Luke did. This was a common way of dating in the ancient world. He mentioned Tiberius Caesar who reigned from A.D. 14 to 37 following the death of Augustus Caesar in A.D. 14 approximately. Then he mentions Pontius Pilate, whom we already know a good deal about. He was the Caesar's governor over the province of Jerusalem. He was hated by the Jews and would go on to oversee the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Then we have three tetrarchs mentioned. Now these tetrarchs are puppet kings set up by the Roman government to act as a go-between between Rome and the section they've been given. Now what is a tetrarch exactly? It is a ruler of any one-fourth of a kingdom or a province. The title is applied in the Bible to any petty ruler set up in the Roman Empire. So three tetrarchs with two of them having a fourth each and one of them having two sections, hence a half of the entire province of Israel. So Adorea and Trachonitis are in the northeast region, and they're ruled by Philip, son of Herod the Great, and brother of Herod Antipas. Then we have Galilee, which is central, which is central Israel, east of Mount Carmel, and that's ruled by Herod Antipas, the latter portion to the lesser-known Lysanias. And so we have the kingdom cut up into four equal parts. Two men have a fourth, and one man has a half. 
And that's what a tetrarchy is. And then we see that Anipus and Philip were brothers. This is important to remember, for Herod will take his brother's wife and is confronted by John the Baptist for this cause. Herod Antipas puts John the Baptist to death. What else is important of this moment of John's ministry? So we look at the moment, and by that I just simply mean the timeline. But there's more to this. We need to understand the historical background that John came up in as with his bold ministry. So this moment of John's ministry, it was a moment of national degradation. The Jew in this day had fallen far from the intentions of the Mosaic law. Few of them followed the truly righteous path, even among those of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were legalists, adding to the law. The Sadducees were liberals, taking away from the law and tolerating Hellenism and all sorts of pagan influence, for they fancied themselves the liberal elitist of that day as they were in bed with the Roman government. The Sadducees had made a deal with the devil, so to speak. The Pharisees, and rightly so, saw that as corrupt and compromising, though they themselves were no more righteous, because they added to the law at the detriment of the common man. What's more of this national degradation, the nation of Israel was under the boot of the Roman Empire. She was no longer free. She had disobeyed God time and time again and now found herself in judgment and in spiritual darkness for hundreds of years had passed since a prophet of God had preached in a public ministry. The people were spiritually anemic. Worse yet, most of them didn't know it. And those that did know it didn't care. And so the moment of John's ministry was marked by national degradation. Much like we find ourselves today in America. It's a dark time spiritually. But I have hope and confidence, should the Lord tarry, that God will raise up men to preach boldly and proclaim the truth. And so the moment of John's ministry was marked by national degradation. But it was also a moment of political corruption, not just national degradation, but political corruption. How so? Well, Herod Antipas, who was mentioned, was one of the most wicked rulers in ancient history. He was a sick puppy, devoted his life to perverted pleasure and Hellenism. He married his half-brother's wife, who he was related to as well. He was despised by the people for his corruption, needless to say, when the wicked rule, the righteous suffer. So the moment of John's ministry was marked by national degradation and political corruption. This was the moment when God would raise up John's ministry. Is our day any different? We live in a time where our nation has completely turned its back on anything to do with the true and living God and where our national leaders call good evil and evil good. They are steeped in the sexual perversion of the LGBT movement just the other day, our president and his wife awarded Woman of the Year to a man wearing a dress. Oh, if there has been a moment where we need the bold ministry of Baptists on behalf of Bible believers, is not this the moment in our nation's history? So not only the moment of John's ministry, which was a moment of national degradation and political corruption. But then we come to verse 2 and 3, and we see the method of John's ministry. The method of John's ministry. Well, what was his method? What did he do? Well, he did the same thing Old Testament prophets did before him and New Testament preachers did after him. 
And Jesus himself commissioned the church to do. He preached. He preached. The text says this in chapter 3, verse 2b through 3. It says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching. And so John's method was preaching. He didn't share little stories. He didn't set up a community outreach program consisting of charity to ease the conscience of those involved. He heralded at the top of his lungs the word of God. And that's exactly what we need in our hour. We need bold, biblical, bare-knuckle preaching. We need men to rise up back in the pulpits and declare, Thus saith the Lord, to move expositionally through whole sections of Scripture, exhorting sinners, edifying saints, and exalting the Savior. We need preaching. That's what we need. This church you sit in under my time, those of you that are listening to go to Cedar Shoals, as many mistakes as I've made, I have built upon the back of biblical exposition, not programs, though they have their place, not music, though we all love to make a joyful noise to the Lord, noise to the Lord. but the meat and potatoes, the God-ordained method has been the preaching of the Word of God and exalting the God of the Word. It's God's method. It's the only one he approves. For Paul wrote to the Corinthians that God had sent him not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Then in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, Paul makes this statement, that it pleases God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Not foolish preaching, there's too much of that, but the foolishness of preaching. That is the perceived foolishness from this world. Oh, they find our method of preaching foolish and odd, yet it is the method God has ordained to save those who believe. And the method is based upon the message that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so John went about preaching. Now, what of John's method, the method of John's ministry? Well, I want you to note that, first of all, it was spiritually approved. It was spiritually approved. That is that the Bible says the word of God came to John. How did it do that? By the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. And so it was spiritually approved. Secondly, I want you to know that it was scripturally applied. It was scripturally applied. John took the book of Isaiah uh, and fulfilled that, even though that was a prophecy, but still the case is that it was scripturally applied. He preached the same message that the Old Testament preached, repent, repent, repent. And so John's method of preaching was not only spiritually approved, but it was scripturally applied. And so we note the method of John's ministry, that it was preaching, which was spiritually approved and scripturally applied. But notice next the mission of John's ministry. Not only the moment and the method, but notice the mission. Look at verse 4, part B. It says this. If I can flip the turn of the page in my Bible. Excuse me. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The mission of John's message 
was to carry out the mission of God. What I mean by that is that he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy by preparing the way of the Lord. And so his mission, in other words, in plain language, John's mission was to point people to Jesus. And he boldly carried out this mission. It wasn't a popular mission. In fact, it got him killed. While it wasn't popular with the people, it was pleasing to the Lord. And so John's mission, if I was summarized, we could talk about how he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, and we know he did. But I want you to just see it from this standpoint, that his mission was exactly what Isaiah prophesied, to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the people, to point the people to Jesus, to point them to God. And so the mission of John's ministry was not to make money. It was not to build a crowd. It was to point people to Jesus Christ. In summation, we can say the mission of John's ministry was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, which is exactly what Isaiah prophesied. Now, I want to say this. Our mission is very similar. We are to prepare people for the second coming of the Lord. John said, repent, the, the king is coming. And Jesus did because when John saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. Well, our mission, though in a different context, is really the same. We're saying, repent, for the king is coming back. John said, repent, the king is coming. We're saying, repent, the king is coming back. So our mission is virtually the same as John's, is to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord by pointing them to the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And so we see the mission of John's ministry was no different than our mission when you really look at it. And so he fulfilled that by fulfilling that prophecy. And then finally, we come to the message of John's ministry. And this is really the meat here. In verses 7 through 18, we come to the message. Now, what was John's message? Well, it was repentance. It was repentance. Uh, he, he wanted people to turn from God to sin. But what were the specifics? What were the specifics? Well, first of all, he addresses the religious Jewish crowd. That is those that put their trust in their ethnic heritage and their connection to Abraham. And they believe that would grant them access to heaven. So the first principle then of the message of John's ministry was this. Religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance. And so in verses 7 through 9, he presupposes the argument and he calls them vipers. He said, don't come to me talking about your Abraham's son. He said, if God wanted to, he could turn these rocks into Abraham's children. In other words, being a Jew is not going to give you a free pass into heaven. And so the first principle John lays out is that religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance. In order to be saved, you must repent. You must admit what you are, a sinner, and you must turn to Jesus Christ. Often we hear people say, don't call people names. I remember when the world-renowned false teacher Rick Warren said that we should not call the lost the lost or call them sinners. Well, that's what Jesus called them. He said, well, we should say unchurched. There's only one problem with that. It's unbiblical. 
John called them snakes. We do the drunk no favor in ignoring his sin of drunkenness. We do the homosexual no favor in watering down his offense to God. Sin has to be addressed for what it is. I'm not saying that we are memes necessarily, but that we tell the truth, that we tell people, listen, apart from Christ, you are a sinner. We all are sinners because the Bible says, for all have sinned. And we do them no favor when we say, well, they're unchurched. Well, Okay, what does that mean? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Let's call it what it is. We're sinners. We sin. Therefore, we need a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And so he says, listen, religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance. And he says that the acts of God's judgment has been laid to the root, Israel. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cast into the fire. Now, what fruit? Well, the fruits of repentance. Look at verse 8. He said, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And so the first principle of John's message to the religious Jews, but it applies to the religious people of our day who think, well, I go to church and, you know, I ain't never killed nobody, blah, blah, blah. Well, the principle is universal. Religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance. Now, secondly... John tells us that repentance requires the rejection of sin. In verses 10 through 14, each one of these groups come to John and say, well, what do I need to stop doing? And John says, uh, sin. The tax collectors who were stealing, John basically tells them, stop stealing. The soldiers who were abusing their authority, John tells them basically, stop abusing your authority. And so each group came to John, and John gave him the same message, repent. The religious group came. He said, well, stop trusting in religion. Start trusting in Jesus. Religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance. The soldiers and tax collectors, stop abusing your authority and stop stealing. So what we see in this second principle of the message of John's ministry is that repentance requires the rejection of sin. You have to turn from sin to Christ. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have truly repented, write this down. Your desires will change. Your disposition will change. And your direction will change. You will not desire sin to the degree that you did before because you will have a higher desire for Jesus Christ. Your disposition will change in that you will literally change in your everything about you from the inside out. And your direction will change that you will no longer be walking towards what you want but walking towards what God's want. These are the evidences of obedience towards God, a.k.a. repentance. And so we see that repentance requires the rejection of sin. So in conclusion, we've seen the bold ministry of John the Baptist. We do well to measure our ministry to his. For not only was his ministry predetermined by the sovereign Lord, but it was approved by the sovereign spirit. So much so that God himself decided to preserve its account for us here in the scripture. Our mission is the same, to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Our method must be the same, to preach and teach the word of God. In keeping with these measures and a spirit of boldness, we will run well and finish faithfully for the King Jesus. So in review, 
we noted the moment of John's ministry. It was a moment of national degradation and political corruption. We noticed the method of John's ministry. It was preaching that was spiritually approved and scripturally applied. We noticed the mission of John's method, which is no different than ours, to prepare people for the coming king. We noted the message of John's ministry. It was repentance. Well, what about repentance? Well, you need to know that religious pedigree is no substitute for repentance, and repentance requires the rejection of sin. In all of this, we note the bold ministry of John the Baptist. And so it's my hope and my prayer that we will pattern our ministry after the boldness and the biblical nature of that of John the Baptist. God bless you. Keep studying the book of Luke.